been a couple weeks, hasn't it, since I spoke? Um, but I, actually, before I get there, I want to ask you all a question, okay? And, and I want you to answer this. Now, you can write down your answer if you want. You don't have to, but definitely come up with an answer because I'm going to ask you guys what your answer is after. So, in a word or a phrase of no more than three words, tell me what you feel is absolutely essential to understanding the teaching and ministry of Jesus. In a word or a phrase. Now, I want to put this differently because I realize it's a lot. What word or phrase would you use that is absolutely essential to the teaching and ministry of Jesus, without which you totally miss him? Wait. I want you guys to think for a second, and then I'll ask you for answers. How many of you are still thinking? How many of you have your answer? Okay, we'll give you another few seconds, because I really want us to think about this. Does anyone need more time? How many of you, how many need more time? Have you thought of, okay. Now I want to hear some answers. So some, who said grace? Okay. About three people said grace. Okay. Four or five. Who, who, what other answers are there? Love. Okay. How many say love? Wow. So what is that? Probably half, maybe. Are there other answers? Holy Spirit. How many say Holy Spirit? Four. Okay. Any other answers? Yeah. Exalts to the highest. Okay. Brian. Sure. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Diane. Thy kingdom come. Interesting. How many said the kingdom of God? Thy kingdom come. One person. One person. Now. Do you know how many times most of us said love? Do you know how many times Jesus actually teaches on love in the Synoptic Gospels? I'm talking Matthew, Mark, Luke. Who wants to guess? How many times do you think Jesus talks about love? Just yell it. 10, 50? Did you say 50? Two. Two times. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. And love your enemies. So he talks about it twice. Two times. Do you know how many times he talks about the kingdom of God? I'm going to tell you later. Keep you in suspense. But what I'm going to say right now is that if you don't have an understanding of the kingdom of God, you're going to totally, 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 totally miss Jesus. Not by a little, by, you're going to totally miss him by a ton. Because that's all he talked about. And I'm going to go more into this. But I want to say something just so we don't feel bad. I love Gordon Fee. If you don't know who he is, he's an amazing New Testament scholar who I'm one of his biggest fans, I'm sure. But when he was a professor at Wheaton, how many of you have heard of Wheaton? Yeah, a well-known seminary in the United States. He did this. He asked his students. Now, there's 40 people in his class. These are, most of them grew up in Sunday school. Most of them were evangelicals their whole lives. When he asked them this, it was similar. Only three of them said the kingdom of God. Most said love. But like I said, now love's important, don't get me wrong, but it needs to be understood within the context of the kingdom of God. Everything does, because that's what Jesus was all about. And I'm excited because um, if those of you know me, I like praying about what to speak on, and 
and, you know, what series to do and that sort of thing. And, and I've been feeling to do this series for a while, like probably at least six months, if not longer. But I've been just waiting because timing's important. And I felt after the last series, the Lord wanted me to do this. I'm excited. I'm ready to go. The kingdom of God. Because it is so important, so important. What does Jesus tell us to seek first? The kingdom of God. How are we not going to, how are we going to actually fulfill that command if we don't even know what the kingdom of God is? Because in all honesty, a lot of us don't. Like you hear Jesus talk about it, but you don't really think, what's he talking about? The kingdom of God is at hand. What, what does that even mean? Now, if we're going to, like I said, if we don't get that, if we don't know what it means, we don't consider, we're going to miss Jesus by a ton. And so I want to spend a bunch of time, however long, talking about this because it's so important, okay? So I already made some of these points, but the absolutely essential teaching is the kingdom of God in Jesus. If you miss the kingdom of God and what that means, you're going to miss them all together. So the evidence, this, and I'm going to give you some evidence in case you're skeptical. The evidence of that thoroughgoing in the New Testament and in the Gospels themselves. Okay. The first point I want to show you is that whenever any of the synoptic Gospels summarize the ministry of Jesus, they always do to, in regards to the kingdom of God. Always. So I'm going to just give you this from Mark. First, I'm going to show you Mark, uh, Matthew, and then Luke's summaries of, of Jesus' entire ministry and teaching. Okay, so this is from Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is his summary, like I said. This is what Jesus was all about, okay? He came to the synagogues, synagogues, preaching this, the time is fulfilled. What time? Let's ask that question. What time? The time of the kingdom of God, okay? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. What good news? The good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. So what I want to say is, what Mark wasn't saying that Jesus, this is all he said, like, it's not like he went to synagogue and synagogue and just saying these, this, this sentence. Believe the good news. The kingdom of God's at hand. The time is fulfilled. Believe the good news. The kingdom. He didn't just, but what he was saying is if you took the entirety of Jesus' teaching and his message and put it in a capsule format, so to speak, this is it. Right? This is what Jesus was all about in his ministry and his teaching. Everything had to do with the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand, and this is the summary of his whole ministry, okay? And this is the same thing with the other Gospels. I'm going to show you Mark now, or Matthew, rather. In two different places in Matthew's Gospel, he summarizes Jesus' message. And what's interesting is the, when he does this, this actually right after Jesus goes into a whole bunch of teaching and ministry that has to do with the kingdom. So, the first place is in Matthew 4.23. This is when Jesus was just starting his ministry. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease among them. How many of you know what teaching goes on right after this? Anyone? Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. So this is transitioning right into this whole, the most famous sermon of Jesus all about the kingdom. Okay. Now, a similar summary goes in Matthew chapter 9. And this also begins a whole long teaching 
uh, of Jesus. Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went throughout the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And then there's a whole bunch of teaching right after this. In other words, this is the summary of what Jesus is all about, right? Luke's version... This is Luke chapter 4, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they come uh, where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. That's why I was sent. Why was he sent? To proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is all about. That's why God even sent them to us, according to Jesus. And here's another one. Luke 8, after 8, 1, Luke, or, sorry, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, um, and the 12 were with him. Okay, now, not only was this the summary of Jesus, his ministry and teaching in the Gospels, According to Jesus, this was the message he told his disciples to to preach too. According to Jesus' own instructions about, this is how I want you to do my ministry, he always did it in terms of the kingdom of God. Always. So two different occasions. We all know this when he sent out the 12, Matthew 10, 5 to 8. Jesus sent them out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. That's it. That's all. That's all. That's it. No more instructions about what to say. The kingdom of God is here. Then he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received. Freely give. It's the only thing he told them to say. Isn't that kind of intimidating? Like when we want to do some major ministry thing, we want a lot of training, don't we? This is Jesus' training to his disciples. Just go to town to town, say the kingdom of God is here, and then heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. That's it. Oh, wow. Okay, no, nothing more. Are you sure? <laughs> no, that's it. Now, this interesting thing is similar instructions when he sends out the 72. So that was to the 12. This is in Luke 10, 8 to 12. When you enter a town and you're welcome, eat what's offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's it. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe off of our feet is a warning to you. Yet be sure of this. What? The kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, I said this earlier. The kingdom of God is always on Jesus' lips. Okay? And I'm going to show you some statistics. Now, I already said that he talks about love twice. Look at how many times he talks about the kingdom of God, okay? So, oh, and also he speaks about it in every kind of saying. Parables, admonitions, sorry, apocalyptic, beatitudes, all of them wrote the kingdom of God. Matthew 49 times, Luke 41 times, Mark 15 times, John 3 times. Now, I want to say this about John. John is a bit different. The language he uses to describe the kingdom of God is eternal life, the life of the age. Different emphasis, different language, Similar idea. Now, what you might be like, big deal, 49 times in Matthew, but this is only counting when he says kingdom of God specifically. If we just counted how many times he just said the word kingdom, it would probably double all of these. 
Okay, so he talks about it a lot. That's what he was all about. Most, almost all of the parables were about it. You know, all, all of his teachings. Okay, now the interesting thing is too, there's 18 different expressions about the kingdom found only on the lips of Jesus and nowhere else in all of literature. Okay, so in other words, it's totally, totally unique to Jesus in history before, like, in contemporary and before him. For example, Jesus is the only person ever to say, seize the kingdom, seek the kingdom, enter the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom, keys of the kingdom, least and greatest of the kingdom, just some examples. Okay, so the kingdom's a big deal, isn't it? The interesting and the sad part is, uh, before I get there, so uh, if you don't, <laughs> if I didn't say this enough, that everything about Jesus has to do with the urgency of the kingdom. The kingdom is the crucial thing to miss this term is to miss Jesus altogether. And the unfortunate thing is, how, when's the last time you heard a sermon on the kingdom? Anybody? How many of you have never heard a sermon on the, on the kingdom? Okay, there's, look, there's like a, I don't know how many, four, five, six, whatever. Haven't even heard one single message about the kingdom, and this is what Jesus was all about, period. That says something, doesn't it? Now, there's, I believe there's reasons for that. It's that we, there's a lot of misunderstanding. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? There's some ambiguity. What is the kingdom of God? Really, like, what is it? What do you mean, Jesus? And we're going to talk all about that, okay? So it's a series, and I got to, like, uh, hold my horses today. I had this message. I already had to cut it in half, and we'll see if I can even get through the first half. But anyway, well, thank God for a series, because then we can continue next time. But, but the problem is, because there's so much difficulty or misunderstanding what the kingdom actually is, often we spiritualize it. Are we, you know what, what I think is problematic is we reinterpret Jesus through the eyes of Paul. Got to be the other way around. Jesus is our anchor in everything we do, say, or think in terms of especially theology has to go through him. So in other words, we have to interpret Paul through Jesus, not the other way around. The problem is we emphasize what Paul says, and then we see Jesus through his eyes. And why that's problematic is because often people, how many of you have heard, this is pretty common recently, people just are getting rid of the teachings of Jesus. Really. They're saying, and this is, not, this is not uncommon, that it's Old Covenant. Before his resurrections, all Old Covenant, so all of his teachings were Old Covenant. That is the, a lie from the pit of hell. If you believe it, I'm sorry, but it is. It is completely wrong. In fact, Jesus, Jesus <laughs> warns us about that, people who do that very thing. Do you remember in Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, those wise builders who what? Do these words and obey them versus those people who build their foundation on the sand don't do these words or obey them? In other words, we're going to be judged on Jesus' words. So we got to really, really... Now, how in the world are we going to understand Jesus if most of his teachings are about the kingdom and none of us even think about what is the kingdom, right? Or understand what is the kingdom. So this is a crucial message in teaching, not this particular message. I mean, just to understand, okay, what's the kingdom? We got to Answer the question, what is the kingdom? And we got to understand it. Because think about it. If that was his one, this is what you do as a disciple of me, go preach the kingdom, and we don't even know what the kingdom is, that's a problem, isn't it? So we got to know and understand this is what the kingdom is. And I said this earlier. It's a tragedy that this gets ignored in the church because what's his seek first the kingdom? 
and his righteousness is what Jesus tells us to do. How are we going to seek first the kingdom if we don't even think about it or know what it is? Right? Now, I, we'll get to this in this series. Because <laughs> there's, there's some good reason it, why. Uh, and, and I'm so excited because we're getting into the crux of, honestly, to understand even the whole New Testament, we have to understand this concept of where we are as the people of God in time. How many of you heard the phrase already, not yet? The radical middle. We're going to get all into that because that is so important to understand the New Testament. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. And so we'll get there. What does the kingdom of God mean is the million dollar question. Okay, so I want to look at uh, Mark's summary a little bit and just start chipping away at this because there's, there's a lot to come. But, but I want to focus on one thing in particular. So remember, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Believe, repent and believe the good news. So the first thing I want to point out is this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What I want to point out is these are what? Temporal terms dealing with time, not space or geography. He's not dealing with, like, when we think of kingdom, we often think of what? Like the kingdom of Denmark or something. Like a geographical location. That is not how Jesus talks about the kingdom. The kingdom is talked about in terms of the time. The time. In fact, if you think about it, when the people were talking to him and asking about the kingdom, they never asked where or uh, what. They asked when. When. Timing. It's all about time. And that's one of the things where we miss it because we're thinking kingdom, like a, a geographical land somewhere, and he's saying, no, this is a time. A time of God's rule and reign. Okay. Now, it's primarily a time of the end when God exercises his sovereignty and rules supremely in his creation. And I'm going to go into this a lot these next couple times. But what I want to say for now, because we're talking about time, we're talking about fulfillment. When, I should say this too. If we're talking about fulfillment, we're talking about the categories of promise and fulfillment. So if there's a fulfillment of something, there was a promise, Right? So when Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled, there was a promise that's being fulfilled right now, okay? So what I want to start talking about today is what he means by that. Now, in order to understand that, we have to understand the kingdom of God is essentially an eschatological term. How many of you know what eschatological means? How many don't? Okay, this is good, and I'll, I should probably say this every single time. This is one of the most important words for understanding the New Testament and who we are as the people of God. It really is. Especially talking about the kingdom of God. But essentially, eschatology simply means having to do with the time of the end. The end times. So whenever you hear people talking about the end times, that's eschatology. Okay? So the Greek word eschaton is translated into English and it just means end. The end. Okay? So everything is looking forward to the end in the New Covenant too. The book of Revelation, right, all about eschatology, like the, God, the end times, what God's doing. So that, does that make sense, what eschatology is? Good. So I'm going to use that word, and I, I should probably remind us 
each time, since you don't hear that too much, but it is an important word to understand. So the kingdom of God belongs to the category of a time that's been fulfilled. I already said this. There's been a promise. This is the fulfillment of that promise. So that means the kingdom of God in some way is related to Jewish end-time expectations and must be understood in terms of Jewish messianic hopes because everybody, this is the interesting thing we don't think about, Everybody knew what Jesus was talking about when he said the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought about that? They never asked, what do you mean the kingdom of God? What does that mean? They all knew. John the Baptist too. When he comes on the scene, he's like, repent, right? The time, we're right at the brink of the kingdom of God being here. Repent and get right with God because that's happening soon. In fact, the Messiah is in our midst, Right? So it, they, all, they didn't say, what are you talking about? They're all like, oh my goodness, i got to get right with God because the kingdom of God is right at hand. So they all knew. Now, I'm saying this because I want to go through, and this is what I'm going to do today, go through the Old Testament. <laughs> we'll see how much I get through today. But go through the Old Testament, and then the intertestamental period between Matthew, or sorry, Malachi and Matthew, because during those 430 years is absolutely crucial for understanding what the heck, sorry, if you don't like the word heck, but what the heck Jesus was talking about, because they all knew. There's something that happened during that time that the language of the kingdom of heaven came, of God, and the language of this age and the age to come, and they all understood it. And so I want to get us to that place. If we don't understand what he's, where he's coming from, it's hard to understand what he's even talking about. But I just want to say, it has to do with eschatology. It has to do with Jewish end-time expectations and the messianic hopes. Okay. So, just briefly, according to their end-time expectations, they're looking for the Messiah to come at the end of history. And we're going to get all into this probably next time, uh, and some this time. And start a brand new age. You know the New Age movement actually stole that word from us? The audacity. It's a huge perversion. The New Age is a, is a word in the New Testament, all over the New Testament. So we got to get that back. <laughs> you know what I'm right? But that's what they're expecting, that the Messiah would come in and actually end history and usher in a brand new age. Now, to understand this, we have to do some sort, get some sort of feel for the background or the framework for which this all fits into. In other words, we have to go back to the Old Testament and understand the nature of this hope so that to get to, okay, how is it when Jesus and John the Baptist were on the scene, everyone knew what they were talking about? Because in all honesty, this language isn't really in the Old Testament. But if you, if, as we go through the Old Testament, you see the progression in the history of how this became developed, then you get an understanding, oh, that's how, what they were expecting and how everybody was on the same page with this whole thing, okay? So what I want to do today... Like I said, I have to, we'll do this probably in two sessions. Is go back to the Old Testament to understand the nature of this hope that they had. Okay? Now, I kind of already said this, but if you go to the Old Testament, it comes to us in a way in which the story always has a forward look to it. They're always looking forward to a future hope. Okay? So they're always looking forward to a new covenant. That's going to take place in what they call the latter days. How many of you heard the latter days? Now, some translations say the last days. That's the, the better translation is the latter days because it means the days that are beyond our days. 
in a historical sense. So they're looking for this time, they call the latter days, for God to come and do something within history. Okay, There's, and that's important. The reason it's important is because when we get to the intertestamental period, that changes. But if you look at the Old Testament, they're actually thinking God's going to do this within history. Okay, and I'll just leave that there for, but that's why I have that highlighted. It's going to make more sense later. So what, what, instead of going all the way back, I want to go back to David. Because David became Israel's ideal king. And if you think about it, even the Messiah is called the son of David. Why? We're going to talk about that a little bit. So David ruled during the time of Israel's greatest glory. The golden age, right? The golden age of Israel's history. He's always looking back to David. He was a model for Israel in its life of a person who's truly given to God, despite his sins, right? We talked about this before, how even in Acts 13, 22, God says, David was a man after my own heart, because he did all my will, right? Even, even in spite of all of his sins, even in the year, right? years and hundreds of years later, God still assesses him in that way. Now, after David and Solomon, how many of you have read the Old Testament, like the Book of Kings and Chronicles? Okay, you're going to know what I'm talking about. After David and Solomon, we all know Israel declined, didn't it? Like majorly declined, morally especially, okay? I, I mean, just read the Book of Kings. You, you have to ask God, the Holy Ghost, for supernatural joy so you don't get depressed reading the Book of Kings, <laughs> Because every king almost is like, oh, they weren't like their father David. They set up, you know, idols and all this crazy stuff. And that was right after David, right? Solomon went into immorality, and then it just went horrible from there. And, and they're in civil war for hundreds of years. We know right away the north and south went to war, right? Then they split. So there's a king of the north, and there's a king of Judah, and they're constantly in war, constantly Okay? So they had good reason for a future hope because, I'm just getting my caught up here, because they had so many promises that they weren't seeing in their time. They were seeing all this horrible immorality, king after king, and sin, and idolatry, and immorality, and they're like, so they started, this hope grew up in Israel, uh, next slide please, this concern that God should restore the fortunes of David in the future. Okay? So, the, the Davidic kingdom of the past was now projected to the future and idealized. David became the ideal king, and his reign became the ideal time. So, in other words, they're like expecting God to do the David thing again in their history at some point in the future. And I'm just going to quickly... Psalm 2 and Psalm 72. Psalm 72 especially reflect that understanding of a future king who's going to rule in righteousness and care for the orphans and do the things that God's righteous king would be expected to do. How many of you know Psalm 72? Psalm 72, 8 is on the peace tower. How many of you know Psalm 72, 8? What's it say? He shall have dominion, the dominion of Canada, from what? Yeah, sea to sea, from the river, sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth. That's in Psalm 72. It's talking about the Davidic hope of a Messiah future king, right? So it's a long psalm. I recommend it to you. 
If you go to the next slide, I'm going to give you the summary of the psalm. This is, this is just a summary. May he reign with justice, delivering the needy, crushing the oppressor. That's verses 1 to 4. Give him an enduring reign, 5 to 7. Renew the old boundaries of Israel and more. We just talked about that, right? Sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth. Theme of justice is repeated. Now, justice and righteousness are the foundation of of the throne, of his throne, right? So they were expecting when God came in the latter days, those would be predominant. Righteousness and justice would be reestablished because those things went out the window after David. And in his enduring reign with blessings, verses 15 to 17. Okay, now we get to the prophets, and if you guys know the Old Testament, that's kind of how it goes, right? You got the Old Covenant, the Torah, the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and then you got the prophets. Now the prophets, oh, I, I want to reemphasize this. All the way through the Old Testament, and especially in the prophets, the hope for the future is still a hope again. That's within history. I'm repeating for our sake, so we remember that. Because, like I said, in the intertestamental period, that totally changes. They're looking for God to step in on the scene, restore the fortunes of David in a historical sense, and God's going to put a new David on the throne, and that David's going to rule in righteousness sometime within history. That's their hope. Now, the prophets came along, and within this framework of a future hope, they took this hope and gave it a word, and they called it the day of the Lord. You guys know that. You've heard it, right? The day of the Lord. That's from the prophets. That's what they're referring to with this future hope. They named it now. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Always looking forward to the day of the Lord in the latter days. So there's a time in the future when God's going to have his day and exercise his rule over all the earth. It's going to be awesome, right? God's going to reign. It's going to be a theocracy again. Now, The interesting thing is in the prophetic tradition, and most of us probably know this, the day of the Lord was first of all going to be a day of judgment. In fact, 95% of the oracles in the prophets are judgment oracles. Okay? 95%. That's why people, people have a hard time sometimes reading, right, Jeremiah. It's kind of depressing, but it's judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment. Now, Not only was it going to be a day of judgment upon the surrounding nations, but it's also going to be a day of judgment on Israel itself. Why? Because they were God's people, and they were not acting like God's people or doing his will at all. Right? And so, I want to point this out. If you look at the prophets over and over and over again, if you look at what's, what is, what's, Causing this future judgment, three things, major things, over and over again. If you look at, this is always in the context of judgment, what's going on. First of all, the leading cause of judgment was idolatry. If you look at the prophets, that's the number one sin they fell into. That's that's why God's going to judge them. The second one, which isn't too far behind, but we don't hear much about, is oppression of the poor. Is that surprising? I mean, we all get idolatry, but how much of us think about the reason Israel is getting royally rebuked and judged is because of the oppression of the poor over and over and over again. That's in why God's saying, I'm going to be judging you. 
The third one, which isn't too far behind that one, is sexual morality, and that's often tied to idolatry. And you can see that as well in the Old Testament. So, although the predominant motif throughout the prophets and that the day of the Lord will be judgment, we know this. It's also going to be a day of salvation and restoration following the judgments. Right? So we know some of these famous scriptures that we quote, like Jeremiah, what is it, 31? I know the thoughts I have for you, says the Lord, thoughts of uh, future and a hope, all that. That's in the midst of terrible <laughs> judgments, right? We often just quote that, but that's like the promise, okay, after the judgment, this is okay. There's going to be restoration. There's going to be salvation. Thank God, right? So, what, what idea also developed during that time is that the day of salvation is going to be for a righteous remnant who are going to do God's will by obeying the law. You guys remember that language, the righteous remnant? It's all over the Old Testament. So that's the theme of the remnant emerged amidst the longer people because the people have failed. And Paul talks about the remnant as well in the New Testament. But what I want to say here, we're talking about, okay, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he stood towards the end of this prophetic era, the classical prophetic era, and he proclaims to the people of God that he's going to make a new covenant. He's the first one to say that in the Old Testament. I'm going to make a new covenant because you guys totally blew it. You broke my old covenant. Therefore, I'm going to make a new covenant. And this is, I'm going to just give you that scripture. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And there's more. I just clipped out just a portion of it. But the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And like I said, that's the first time it says this in the Old Testament. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So this is right. They, you broke my covenant. I'm going to have to make a new one now. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And he goes on. The point is, God is going to make a new covenant. So they now have this hope that they're holding on to. Okay, things are bad now, but over and over and over again, God promises this new covenant promise of restoration and salvation. So, in this process of, of declaring judgment and salvation, the character of the judgment was justice above everything else, and we talked about this before, right? Righteousness and justice. God is going to restore righteousness and justice. So they're looking forward to this day where the righteousness of God's going to reign and he's going to have his justice. And that's what the judgments are all about. God's justice, right? Because he's just as well as loving. So that's what it's going to be characterized as, is righteousness and justice. And because it was going to be Yahweh's day, if you don't know, that's the likely name of God, things were going to be made right. And here's some examples Okay, the talking about the restoration, what the latter days are going to look like when this happens. Because it was his day, God would overturn the effects of the fall. People are going to dwell together in peace. They're going to worship Yahweh in love and peace. And we know a lot of these Old Testament scriptures, right? The lion and the lamb are going to lay together. There's going to be uh, roses blossoming in the desert. And I'm going to make highways and level the mountains for you. And all these amazing promises of restoration. The whole creation is going to feel the effects of this, right? When God has his day. 
Yahweh's going to rule supreme over all creation and all the universe. You look at the latter part of Isaiah, all the universe, God's going to have his way completely. His will is going to be completely done in those days. Righteousness is going to prevail and justice is going to cease. Okay, now, the day of judgment came. The day of judgment came. All of these prophets were saying, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, even though they didn't really believe it, over and over again, right? You got Isaiah, you got Jeremiah. Judgment's coming. Now, it came. Then Israel went into exile, right, for 70 years. So it came in the form of Babylonian captivity. How many of you know that? Right? Yes. So, they're in exile now, right? The Babylonians come, totally trample on Israel, demolish its temple. Now they're in exile as slaves and prisoners to the Babylonians. Now, we still have that imagery in, in Revelation, right? Talking about Babylon, right? So Babylon is a, is a type and shadow of the Babylonian system, that we have to overcome to this day. But what I want to say is that the time between exile and restoration, there's a re-expression of this prophetic hope that there's still going to be a day of the Lord. Okay? So this, this, this hope, this future hope that God's going to come, he's going to make all things right again, he's going to get rid of all this evil, and he's going to restore us, and all these amazing promises are going to come back. Okay? And, and, and again, that he's going to do this within history in the latter days. So... What's that? Judgment. So Ezekiel, if you don't know, prophesied during the exile. Okay? Ezekiel. So Jeremiah was before, if you guys don't know this, I'm just, and he's saying, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, but there's going to be restoration too, but judgment's coming. Then judgment comes. Then they're in exile in Babylon, and Ezekiel comes along, okay, and prophesies during this time. And he picked up this motif of the new covenant. So he picks up Jeremiah's, when he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, right? I'm going to put my law in your hearts. You're going to obey me. You're going to no longer have to ask your neighbor, know the Lord, because you're going to know me personally. It's going to be awesome. Ezekiel picks this up. And he, now this is important for future. He specifically relates the new covenant of keeping the law in terms of the spirit, Oh my goodness, is that ever crucial if you're going to understand Paul the Apostle? He, we'll get to that. But, he, but Ezekiel now puts that as a crucial factor of the new covenant. So here's an example of when he talks about it. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27. For I'll take you out of the nations. Now remember, they're scattered now. They're in captivity. And this is, now this is during that captivity, Ezekiel's prophesying to them, giving them hope. He's saying, for I will take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from the countries and bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and then put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I'll put my spirit in you and you move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They started, because of these kinds of scriptures, looking. You know what the evidence, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, the evidence 
that the last days happen was the Spirit coming on all flesh. That's right, Joel 2. Joel 2, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But that, because of these kinds of scriptures, that was that that and the resurrection were the two things that they knew demarked the latter days are here. Okay. I'm just throwing that out there for now. We'll, get, we'll develop that more at some other time. The next chapter, we're talking about Ezekiel still. I realize this is a lot, but we'll, don't worry. We'll, yes, okay. The Valley of Dry Bones, we all know this. The very next chapter, right after he says this, how many know that, right? Where God's like, hey, he, the Spirit takes Ezekiel to this Valley of Dry Bones. Like talking dry, 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 dry in the middle of a desert, the, right? Super dry. And he's like, hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And you know the right answer is like, heck no. But Ezekiel's like, gives the right, this is the real right answer. You know, Lord, right? Now, we all know this probably from Sunday school, right? The head, hip bones connected to the whatever thigh bone. That's talking about this, right? So I'm, <laughs> but, but what he says is I'm going to breathe life into them by my spirit, right? By, again, and something new is going to happen in the keys, the spirit. Keys of Spirit. So I'm just going to give you the last part of Ezekiel, in case you don't know what I'm talking about. But this is the last part of the Valley of Dry Bones. Okay, Ezekiel 37. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. Because they're in exile, right? We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people are going to open up your graves, or I'm going to open up your graves and bring you from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring them, you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord, have spoken, and I've done it, declares the Lord. You can see why they're expecting the Spirit is the absolutely crucial thing to know. This is the latter days when the Spirit comes. So, the restoration happens. Seventy years they're in Babylon. Seventy years. Now you can see from my title here, Unfortunately, also, the great disappointment. The great, greatest disappointment in Israel's history when they get restored, okay? Like I said, 70 years, they're finally restored to the land. Now, because, okay, because of these prophetic words, right? Judgment, 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 but there's going to be this day of salvation. It's going to be awesome, right? Right? It's going to be awesome. So they're like, oh, we did our time, 70 years. Now is that those other promises are coming now, right? You can see why they would think that. Now all those things are going to come, and the latter days are going to be here, and he's going to restore us all to Israel. It's going to be so amazing. So this, this, this right, we experience the judgment. This must now be the counterpart of the judgment, the salvation of Yahweh. Okay, so they look to that as the great fulfillment of these promises of hope of God's salvation, the time of justice and righteousness. Like I said, they're looking for the desert to blossom like a rose and for the highway to be made through, for mountain places, for their feet to be made straight. But this restoration, instead of being the great day of the Lord of salvation, turned out to be one of the greatest disappointments in all of Israel's history. 
They were so bummed out. Because this is what happened, right? Instead of the nations flowing back to Jerusalem, back to Israel like they were promised, most of the Jews didn't even come back. Their fellow, their family members, right? Not only are the Gentiles not coming, most of our family's not even coming back. Instead of it being a time of righteousness and a time in which everything would be better, they had to work all the harder to make things happen around Jerusalem, and sin prevailed still, right? The second temple was a far cry from that of Solomon or Ezekiel's vision. Now, I'm going to just show you a couple scriptures that show this. this, this it's almost sad, right? This is... This is Ezra 3.12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept out loud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid because it was so much lesser than the previous one of Solomon. They were so bummed. They were weeping. The ones who saw it, they're like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. This is not, not the glory that God promised us at all. Haggai 2.3, he's talking to them after this is built. Who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Like this is how, I don't want to say pathetic, how much lesser right, this temple was, and they're expecting this restoration in the latter days, right, of these promises of the temple and all. So this was a huge, I can't emphasize enough, disappointment in Israel. Huge. They went into despair. Okay? Gloom settled into Israel. Okay? Gloom. Now, so much so that if you look at Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, it simply elaborates on some of these details of the enormity of their despair. Like, it's sad. They are not doing well after this restoration. Imagine that. They're thinking all these amazing promises that we're still quoting from Isaiah and stuff were supposed to happen, and it's like the opposite happens. Super bummed out. Now, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to end here today, because I was going to go into the intertestamental period. But I told you of all of that to say that is the framework, that is the picture that Israel is at when the intertestamental period happens. They are in despair. In fact, I'm going to talk about this next week. I was going to talk about it today, but I realize there's so much material, and I had to just cut this in half because I was going to talk about Old Testament and intertestamental period today. And I guess I could have, but there's a lot to take in, so I won't. This shift takes place. In fact, in the intertestamental period, how many of you ever wonder, why aren't there any books in the Bible after Malachi and before Matthew? Ever wonder that? You know why? Because it became the time of the quenched spirit. That's what they thought. They thought the spirit left. There's no more prophetic voice in the land. This is the time of the quieted or the time of the quenched spirit. No more prophets. Okay, and I'm going to show you next week. So actually, this is based off of Zechariah. He prophesied, God prophesied, there's going to be no more prophets. And they said, this is the time. This is the time. So you see people writing there in that time, talking about how this time is the time where God doesn't speak anymore. The prophets are gone out of the land. Holy Spirit's not here anymore. 
And you can see why, because the spirit supposedly left where they were like looking for the spirit to come back. And when he came back, that was an indication God's day has come. Now, not only that, there is a huge shift, and we'll talk all about this next week. Okay, remember I kept saying that they thought in the latter days God was going to do something in history. This entire shift takes place where God, he's not going to do something in history because they're so bummed out. They're like, this is, this is Satan's age. They came to call it Satan's age. They're like, this age is so evil. This age is so horrible. There's sin everywhere. There's injustice everywhere. There's demon possession. There's sickness. This is Satan's age. So what they were looking for is God to come and end this age in a huge catastrophic kaboom, end history, that would be the day of the Lord, and then it would be the age to come. How many of you know from the New Testament, this age and the age to come? That's coming from the intertestamental period. Now, what's interesting, there were some prophetic writers during this time, but because it was known as the time of the quenched spirit, they had to write under, under other people's names, right? Because there's a scripture in Zechariah that says, if there's a prophet during this time, his parents got to kill him and stab him. So they thought this was that time. So what they had to do if they wanted to speak the prophetic message to Israel is actually do it under someone's name from antiquity who had the spirit. How many of you have heard of the book of Enoch? That was written during this time. Book of Moses. Anyone? During this time. So they are taking other people's names because they couldn't prophesy under their own names because it was the time of the quenched spirit. And then we get all this apocalyptic literature during that time. And all of this language of the kingdom of God, all of this language of this age and the age to come, the fundamental stuff we need to know to understand John the Baptist and Jesus and what they're expecting happened during the intertestamental period. But we don't read about it because we don't have them in the Bible because it was the intertestamental period and they didn't have prophets during that time. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to go into all that next week. But it was in this context of despair that all of this shift happened theologically. That's fundamental to understanding the kingdom of God. And like I said down here, the language and future hope that arose in this period is absolutely crucial for understanding Jesus and John the Baptist. Absolutely crucial for understanding Paul and the whole New Testament. Okay, and so I'm excited to be able to get into that and to have a series on this so that we are, when you, when you, Learn about this and you make those shifts. The Bible makes a whole bunch of more sense. And so I'm excited about this series. And we'll end there. And Trisha has a few things. So just as listening, there's so much material that he's covering. And so I just wanted to clarify just a couple things. If while he was speaking, you uh, wondered about these couple things. Okay. So the first thing would be the kingdom of God. Um, if you haven't heard or didn't think that was the main primary focus of Jesus' teachings, that doesn't mean that you don't know God or don't know his ways. I just want to clarify the kingdom of God is the kingdom of love because God is love. So what he's doing is he's taking all of your understanding that you have and just putting it into a framework and, and, and helping you understand how it fits into the main teaching of Jesus, which is the kingdom of God. Amen. Does that make sense? Okay. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't like, you haven't, you don't know anything about what, I just, just clarifying. Okay. The second thing would be, um, judgment is still coming. So he talked about how the judgment came right before, um, uh, 
like when, when he's talking about the capt, uh, captivity in Babylon, but um, he, just to, to clarify, he's not saying that that is the fullness of the judgment of everything that was prophesied. That is the um, here and like the already not yet kind of uh, mystery about the gospel of Christ that he's going to get into. So I just wanted to clarify that as well. We believe that some of the judgment came, but there's still judgment coming. Um, and then the last thing... Um, just by him bringing up the books of Moses and Enoch does not necessarily mean that we condone them or think that you should read them. That is not at all what he was meaning by that. He was just bringing them up to give an example of something that was written during that time. So those are just specific things I just wanted to clarify just in case there were any questions. Okay. Isn't it awesome to have a wife? Who... Thank you, Tricia. Exactly. And I'm sorry if I gave any of that negative impression. Absolutely. God is love. And this, this is the framework of the New Testament. The love that Jesus talks about is crucial. Oh, my goodness. So crucial. And you know that if you've been coming here that we talk about that a lot. But what we're saying is the framework that needs to be understood within is the kingdom of God because that was what Jesus was all about. Does that make sense? And so, yes, this is framework we're, we're pouring out here. Uh, and not negating forgiveness, for instance. Forgiveness is crucial, but that is to be understood in the framework of the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, does that make sense? Cool. So I'll just pray over us. I realize that was a lot. And believe it or not, I was going to do more, but <laughs> God's merciful, right? Yeah, God's merciful. <laughs> but we'll, <laughs> we'll pray. And don't worry, we're going to repeat and, and I believe repetition is really important sometimes, especially when something's new and there's a lot to, whoa, uh, don't worry. In the weeks to come, there'll be repetition. And Because honestly, it took me a bunch of repetition. Be like, oh, and then it clicks. You're like, oh, and then you're like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, right? Cause, but until that happens, sometimes it's like so new, it's like, oh, my goodness. So that's why I probably repeat and that sort of thing. And next week, I'll give a sh brief summary of what we talked about so we can go on to other things. But anyway, so Father, we just thank you so much. The kingdom of God is at hand. We thank you so much, Lord, that we're living in the time of the kingdom of God is at hand. God, I ask that you give us a new revelation of what it means to be your eschatological people who are living now in the time of your kingdom, but also in the not yet. I ask for the revelation that we can understand what it means to be living in between the ages of this age and the age to come, and what it means to be your people in this age. Lord, I just ask for you pour out your spirit of wisdom and revelation upon us so that we would know you more, but that also that we'd understand your teachings of the kingdom and the mystery of the kingdom and that we'd be people who would seek first your kingdom as you ask us to. And Father, I just end on this prayer of Jesus that he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we just ask that we be kingdom people, living now, doing your will, and releasing your kingdom everywhere we go, that people will see, wow, the kingdom of God is at hand, and this is real. So, Lord, I thank you that it's your time now of reigning and ruling, and we just ask that your manifest presence and power and authority be among us and within us as we continue to seek your will and learn about you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So, on that note, if you... <laughs> Thanks, Trisha. <laughs> it's awesome.